We all have those moments in our life, probably daily, where we are going about our life and we see something, we experience something. We're engaged in something with our our mind, our heart, our life. And we stop and we say, we're struck with this reality. There has to be a God. How often in your day as you are living, do you feel that? Do you think that? Whether you say it out loud or not, it's, it's something that comes across everyone who is created in the image of God. It comes across our life constantly. Maybe it's when you're looking at the ocean or creation, a mountain. You see how vast and large the world around you is and you're struck with the reality. There has to be a God. Maybe the birth of a child. Maybe you're engaged in listening to music. Maybe you see art or architecture. Maybe you're even watching a sporting event and you see another human created in the image of God do something and you say, that's amazing. How can they do that? Or you're studying just information, facts about the world around you. And there is that reality that's pressed upon you. There has to be a God. Now the truth is, even the most entrenched so-called atheist has these moments. How do I know this? It's because Romans chapter 1 verse 20 tells us that God's character, His power, His nature is clearly seen in what was made. You can't look at the world around you and not even know there's a God because you know you didn't put this here. You didn't do this. And no human could create a world like this. It is pressed upon every human constantly so that Paul would say in Romans, we are without excuse in knowing that there is a God. The world around us screams. Psalm 19 says the world around us declares and continually speaks. There is a God. And for this reason, the Bible never sets out to prove there's a God. The Bible never sets out to give us evidence that there is God. The evidence is all around. And so what does the Bible do? The Bible simply declares to us that there is a God and you must worship him. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 1. This is how the book of the Bible begins. The story of the Bible begins in simply declaring to us in the first chapter, there is a God. And then in chapter 2, beginning to say, and you must worship him. There is a God and you must worship him. This is how the Bible begins. And here we find Genesis. This is the the beginning of a story that doesn't end until the book of Revelation. And it is so important for you to understand the Bible is a story. 
And this is the first chapter in that story. It's one whole story that doesn't end to the book of Revelation. And here Moses is the one who begins this story by giving us the first five books of the Bible. So not only does Genesis fit in the story of the whole Bible, it begins the story of what's called the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And what is the reason for Genesis? Well, Moses is giving to the people of Israel their history. He wants them to understand who they are. They are entering into the promised land. And Moses wants to communicate to them where it all began, in whom it all began. As they enter into the promised land and begin to live as the people of God, they are to understand that their beginnings began with the God who began all things. And if they are going to honor Him, not only must they understand there is a God, and the God is their God, they must continually worship Him. And that's what our section of Scripture is about today. There is a God who created all things, and we must worship Him. Notice verse 1, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Now, beginning here refers to before space and time, before any of these things existed, in the beginning, before history, in the beginning, before matter, in the beginning, before energy, in the beginning, before humanity, before anything was that is to come, notice God. We could stop there and we could preach a hundred sermons at this point. In the beginning, God. God was there. John 1, 1, John 1, 1 tells us that in the beginning, the Word was there. The Word was with God. The Word was God. God was there before the beginning. Now, the word used here is Elohim, and it communicates God's transcendence. And the first thing Genesis wants to communicate to us is before there was anything, God was there because God is eternal. And I want you to stop for just a moment and think, there was a time when there was just God. Just God. He had no beginning. And God was there. Think about that. It, it, is, it is literally mind-blowing. That is why He is God. Because He wasn't created, He had no beginning. And what that's to do to us is that is to strike us with awe and wonder as, as we compare our existence to God. He had no beginning. He is eternal. But notice what he does in the beginning. God, who is eternal, created everything from nothing. And notice we see this word created. It is only used of God in Scripture. Uh, God created from nothing. We build, we make, we, we, we create things out of raw material, things that are already there. But when God created everything, nothing was there but Him. And He created everything else out of nothing. The words here, heaven and earth, are used in Scripture just to summarize everything. 
God created everything from nothing. And we're to remember that tomorrow when you're at work and you begin to create documents. When you're at work and you begin to create parts for machines. When you're working on that table. When you're doing that home project. When you're growing grass. You are to be mindful that you are using things God created. But God created when there was nothing and created everything out of nothing. And you are to constantly be in awe of that. Notice verse 2. The earth was without form and void. When God created everything, when God began to create everything, the earth was without form and void. And so the matter, God speaks everything into existence, we're going to say, and the matter that, that was there was without form. Initially, it had no shape to it. And he says here was void, void of life. And notice the description here. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So initially, God who created everything, and before he moves into this step-by-step step of ordering things, days, at that moment there was this blobbish matter that was there. And notice the description. It is surrounded by darkness. Now what's interesting about verse 2 is all of the descriptions of what God is working with here that he created, they are pictures of symbols of judgment. The, the world is empty. The world is lifeless. The world is dark. Like a lifeless wilderness. And as the Israelites read these words, they are going to be struck with that reality. The God who began all things is also the God who was there in our lifeless wilderness, leading us to the promised land. That is the God who created all things. That is the God who is still here. Notice the Spirit of God hovering over us and hovering over the face of the waters. How significant is water in the history of Israel? And it is the God who created all things that is always there in the darkness, in the wilderness, ready, notice, to work. And what does he do? Verse 3 he created everything with his word. God said, let there be light. And there was light. It's so significant how God brought all things into existence. He spoke and notice there was. And first of all, there was light. Now there is some discrepancy. Is this when God created the sun or moon or did he just create light here? It's really hard to know. The point of this verse is he spoke and there it was. He spoke and there was light. He spoke and all of a sudden there was energy to begin to form this lifeless, dark, empty creation that he made. He's going to begin to order these things. But notice he said, let there be light and there was. And he did so by his word. We realize that all existence is dependent on God's word. All existence. Nothing existed until God said it would exist. And he spoke and there it was. And it's significant that God first created light. 
Because so often in Scripture, what is the Word of God compared to? Light. Light. Because you can't make sense out of the world around you apart from God's Word. It's also why Jesus is described as the light of the world. And in Him there is no darkness. And if you follow after Him, you will not walk in darkness. Why? He is the Word that makes sense out of all reality. Because all reality came into existence through the Word of God. You can't know God. You can't know yourself. You can't know the world around you apart from the world. The Word that spoke everything into existence. And now as we begin to move, we're going to try to move quicker through this passage, beginning in verse 4. God begins at this point to shape what is created, what is there, light, darkness, the matter, the space around it. He begins to shape these things into a place to live. And he does so in six days. And what's significant in the next section is God does this through separating As we move through, you're going to see the word separate over and over again. God separates. And that word is used to describe God's sovereign control over all things. God separates to create a place to live. Notice on the first day, verse 4, and God saw the light. And notice he saw that it was good. And God separated the light from darkness And he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. Now there's some phrases repeated that will be repeated throughout that are used here. First of all, God saw. What's so important in Genesis chapter 1 is when God sees, he sees also what is good. God sees what is good. And this refers to God's presence, looking upon what is complete, what is whole. We're going to get to the end, and God sees that it is all very good. It is good, it is whole, it is complete. And what we're going to see is God's presence is always equated with what is good. That's when we get to Genesis chapter 3, and man is banished from his presence. He knows not just what is good, but he knows evil also. But here God sees what is good, what is full of order, what is complete at this moment, and it is light. And so he separates the light from the darkness. Again, his sovereignty in creating this place to live in. And notice also the word he called. He called the darkness. He called the light day and the darkness he called night. The word called there is emphasizing his authority. Adam will name the animals because Adam has authority over the animals. God names the light and darkness because he has authority over all things, including light and darkness. And notice, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, I believe here this starts 24-hour periods that we still experience today. So if you're wondering uh, what I believe about the earth, I believe the earth is young. It's either 6,000 to 20,000 years old because I believe here 24-hour periods and I believe days and I believe that that is significant to Genesis chapter 1 because God is creating order. God is creating time. 
God is creating history, which is going to be so important to the people of Israel as God orders their days, as he gives them promises, as he tells them, you're going to be in the wilderness this long, you're going to do this this long, and then I'm going to fulfill my promises to you. God is ordering time here. But the point, as we look at these words, Saul separate, called. There was. What we see in verses 4 and 5 is God is the hero of the story. God God is the centerpiece of Genesis 1. It's not creation. It is God. As we continue to move through this section of Scripture, as God is separating, the first thing He does, He separates light from darkness. And then on the second day, he separates the sky from the sea. He creates what we, what we understand as the atmosphere, the canopy that, that is over us now in the sky. And he calls it heaven, the heavens. And what's significant about that word is it also can be translated tent. Tent. How significant is the word tent to Israel? They were tabernacled in the wilderness. God calls them to Create a tabernacle where he will reside with them. Here, he is creating a place to live with the heavens. Notice verse 9. On the third day, God has separated light from darkness. He separates the sky from the sea. And here he separates the land from the sea. And we're going to summarize some of these verses, some of these phrases just for time's sake. But notice verse 9. God said, he's continuing to speak. How is God doing all of this? With his word. And he says, let the waters under the heaven be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And notice again, and it was so. He separates the water from the land. And then again, he names it. He calls the land earth or or land. And he calls the water sea. And again, God saw that it was good. God is asserting his authority over all things. We see God has been working vertically. Now he's working horizontally. And the point in all of this, in God seeing it as good and calling it as good and separating it, is God is sovereign over the whole world. Land, sea, earth, sky. God is sovereign over it all. This week you'll go out and you'll, some of you will work with shovels. Maybe you'll use a bobcat. Skid steer, excavator. God uses his word, not just to move a little plot of land, dig a little hole, but to move land and to move water. One of the things I like to do when I'm at the beach, which I love to go to the beach, is not just stare at the ocean and go, my goodness, this this thing is huge. Earth is 57 million square feet surface area. And then the rest is 190 million square feet of water. So when you go to the ocean, you are looking out on that. And you can't, one of the things I like to do as I'm sitting there is get on my phone to be distracted by technology before God's creation. That's what you should do. And to see my little bitty location on this beach and begin to just zoom out and zoom out and zoom out and zoom out, whatever app you have, and to see how much of a speck I am before the ocean, before the land that I call home, that I live on, 
and to see how small I am. But we are to do that in awe of God who created and moved it all with his word, creating a place for us to live and beginning to order it here in a way in which we can live. He creates it. He names it. And at this point, God has separated light from darkness. He separated the sky from the sea. He separated the land from the sea. And now he begins to fill what he has created. God has separated to show he is sovereign. And then he begins to fill with life to show that he is the provider of life and goodness. In verse 11, notice God says he speaks to the earth. He speaks to the land that he has created. And he calls it to sprout forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees bearing fruit. Now what is he doing here? He is providing on the land he has created. All of these things communicate God's provision for us to live on the planet. And God is the one bringing forth this life. And notice again, and it was so. And the earth brought forth, verse 12, all of these things. And God saw that it was good. God is communicating here, even to Israel. I I have separated you from the world. I have separated the water from the land. And I'm putting you in a promised land. Divided the waters of the Red Sea. Put you in the promised land. And guess what I'm going to do there? I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to make sure you have everything that you need to survive. He's communicating this to Israel. He's communicating it to us. You're going to go out. Some of you may farm. Not many of you are going to farm tomorrow. But most of you are going to go to the grocery store. Some of you are going to do that this afternoon as you get ready for the week. And you're going to walk around and you're going to see most of the things you buy in boxes. You're going to walk around and you're going to put those things in a cart. And you're going to walk up to uh, self-scan and you're going to start scanning those things. You may not even have to interact with another human. But you're to realize as you put those things in your car, they would not be there unless God allowed them to be there. He is the one who provides all things. He is the one that takes care of you. Israel is to remember in the promised land as bad as it gets. God will take care of you. He is the one who is providing for you. We continue in this section of Scripture as God continues to fill the earth with provision, with life. Notice, He fills the sky with light, verse 14. And God said, let there be lights. And then we see the stars, we see the moon, we see the sun that is put in this expanse, this tent in the sky for light. But notice he also says that these things are put there uh, to determine signs and seasons. Why is the sun and moon and stars put into place? To declare to us that God is the one who orders time. God is the one who orders all of these things. That's why it's so significant in the Bible that stars are connected to prophecy. Think about in the book of Daniel, how prophecy is communicated with stars. Think about the birth of Christ that is prophesied with a star. What is going on there? God flung those stars in the sky to tell time. He set the moon in its place to tell time. He lets the sun rise 
as we understand it, day in and day out, because He is the one who is ordering time from the very beginning. God orders time. He puts these things in the sky to fill them full of light so that we would know that He is ordering time. And then on the fifth day, we're already down to verse 20. Some of you are like, wow, I never didn't think we'd get here, but we are. Note it. No, I am summarizing a lot of things in my notes. On the fifth day, what does he do? He continues to fill what he has created with life. Verse 20, and God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creature. And so now he sets his gaze on the sea, on the waters, and he fills it full of life. And there's significance here because water is connected to chaos and judgment. But God is the one who is filling the waters with life. He has control. Even there is the point of the text. And God created the creatures that swim. And then, and then with the sky, those things that fly, God is filling the sky with life. The birds that fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens, God is sovereign even there. Again, in bringing forth life, God brings forth life in every corner of his creation. Verse 22 is significant. Even as God is speaking to the life in the sea, life in the sky, he blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. Here God is, God is communicating that even animal life where there is life, he is sovereign over all of these things. And the terminology here is going to even be used of man and woman. They are to fill the world with life. And so there's life all around in the sea, in the sky. And then verse 24, he fills the land on the sixth day with life. He brings forth living creatures and calls them to be fruitful and multiply according to their kind. He blesses them. And this is going to be significant as we think about Israel's sacrifices. We think about the ark. But again, God is the giver of life. And we're going to talk about next week how God created our life, creates us in the image of God. He brings forth the creation of man and gives man life. But as we move our way all the way down to verse 31, God has separated. He's sovereign. He has filled the world with life, land, sea, sky. He has created humans and given them life at this point. Notice how verse 31 summarizes all of this. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was whole. It was complete. And God looks upon it as something that is finished, something that is complete. Notice throughout the whole section, he has looked upon and he has saw what was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then... After man is created and given dominion over all these things, he says, it is very good. God looks upon a created, a completed creation, and, and he's pleased with it. He's delighted in it. Here there is order. There is light. There is land. There is time. There is provision. There is life. There is a king. There is a queen. And God sets back and he delights and admires his work. And that's why in the next section, God separates a day for us to worship. 
him as sovereign and provider of what is good. So, so God is enjoying creation, delighting in it at this point. It is very good. And the point of the text is what God has created demands a response. And that's when we get into chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. It was complete in all the host of them. The, the, the host of what fills the sky. The host of what fills the earth. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. Again, the emphasis here, finished. It was good. It was complete. And notice what God did. He rested on the seventh day. After all of this has been created, God has displayed his sovereignty, his provided life. What does he do? He makes another day where nothing happens. Where God himself says that he rested. Now, God wasn't tired. He didn't need a nap. He didn't need some me time. He just stopped. He stopped. And in some sense, God is delighting in, admiring what he has done. And he works into the pattern of our week a day in which we must do the same. We must stop from our work and admire not just the creation, but what God has done in creating it. And to remember we are not the creator. He, he, he works that into the pattern of creation, a day of worship. And that is the point of Genesis chapter 1. There is a creator. He is God. And he must be worshipped. He rested from all he had done. And it says God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. In the history of Israel, this day of worship was in the pattern of their week where they would work, they would work, they would work up until Saturday and then they would walk away from their fields no matter what. They would walk away from their activity no matter what. Why? Because they were to remember we don't provide for ourselves. Our God is the creator of the universe who has provided all things for us. They were to remember they were not God. And that was to keep them from walking away from Yahweh. In the pattern of their existence, their work week was a day of worship. So they didn't forget who they were. They were a people that were created by Yahweh. The very one who hovered in the very beginning and created order and created life and created goodness. The very one who, who separated the waters from the land. The one who separated the Red Sea so they could walk across into this provision. They were to remember who they were. The creator was their God. Unlike all of the other Egyptian gods. Unlike Baal. Unlike the sun god. The moon god. God, the fertility God. Your God created all of these things. And you can walk away from thinking you're God. You can walk away from the creation and worship Him. And if you don't, you will forget Him. And you will forget most of all who you are. He works a day of worship into our calendar week. One out of seven where we must stop and understand we are not God. If you've gotten anything in this section, I want it to be this. Genesis chapter 1 is about worship. 
A lot of times we come to this section of Scripture and we're looking for scientific facts to refute someone at school, to, to refute someone in the workplace. We're looking for some kind of science here. There's science all over the place. But if you don't worship, you miss the point. If you don't turn from the creation to God, you miss the point. And, and what is to happen in reading Genesis chapter 1 is, is tonight when the lights go out in creation and you go to bed in darkness, you are to remember God is still God and created these things. When you drive on land tomorrow, when you think about the sky, when you think about the sea, what you're to be mindful of is that there's a sovereign God who created all of those things. And if he created all those things, he's in control of all those things. And he's in control of your minuscule little life on those things and in those things. And you are to worship him. You're to stand in awe of him and worship him. And you're to remember, I'm not God, he is. And you are to rest. You're to take a Sabbath and look to him constantly. Every day of your life, when there's morning and evening, you're to remember God orders these things. He put the sun and moon in its place to order every day. When you eat, when you see plants, when you see trees, when you see other humans created in the image of God, you are to worship God. You're to worship God as you see life all around you. God did this. There is a God. But the tragedy of our sin, Paul tells us back in Romans that we mentioned other, earlier, is that we see what is so evident all around us. I'm not God. I didn't put this here I don't control any of this. What Romans 1 tells us is we suppress that truth because of our sin. What sin does to us is it communicates and convinces us that we're all that matters. And in some sense, our sin communicates to us that we are eternal, that we're making all of this happen, that we're ordering our days that we're sustaining our life. And we suppress the truth and it leads to death. We suppress the truth that there is a creator giving us life. That is the sin that we're all guilty of. It's thinking we are God and we make all of this happen. And we can leave it in the generic. That is our sin, thinking we're God and forgetting there is a God. But it's way more personal than that. Colossians, as we we just went through tells us that Jesus is king of creation. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the eternal word who created all things. In Hebrews, we learn that Jesus upholds all things by the power of his word. And so get this, when anyone sins against their creator, they're not sinning against a mysterious force, abstract out there. They're sinning against Jesus himself because Jesus is the one who created all life. Jesus is the one who provides all goodness. And we think, no, I'm eternal. I create. I order my days. You are sinning against Jesus, the creator, when you do this. And while your sin is more personal than you may want to believe, a sin against Christ, sin against Christ, redemption is way more spectacular than creation. In light of what you have done to your creator, Jesus, in light of your 
personal attack against your creator, Jesus? What does Jesus do? Well, the one who is sovereign over light and darkness, sky and sea, the one who controls it with his word, the one who is the word who controls those things, becomes weak and helpless. Think about that the next, thing, next time we sing about it is finished on the cross. You know what that means? The one who separated light from darkness, land from sea. The, 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 the one who, who made all things became weak and helpless. The one who holds the power uh, uh, to, to, to control everything became weak and helpless. And the one who provided life gives his life for ours. The creator of the universe died for your sins. Your sin against him. The light of the world was separated into the darkness of your sin. And he was punished for your sin. He was plunged in the waters of death for your sin. He was nailed to a cross that was made out of a tree that he allowed to grow from the earth he created was nailed to this tree by humans created in his image. That is how spectacular redemption is. As you look at the world around you and you say, oh, there must be a God. Oh, you can say even more than that. You can say there is a Savior and his name is Jesus. And he's died for your sins and he's been raised from the dead. And you know what Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 says he did after he was raised from the dead? But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. His work was finished. On the seventh day, it was finished. <laughs> and on the third day, it was finished. And Jesus rested. And you know what he does now? He says, come rest. Come worship me. Come realize you're not God and you're not a savior. And come trust in me and look to me. And for all who do, we can say, yeah, there is a God. I've seen him in creation. But there's also a Savior and I've seen his face. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who, let, who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Think about that. In Christ, you see the face of the eternal God who created everything from nothing by the power of his word and sovereignly rules over it and provides for it. You have seen his face in the gospel. I wonder today if you would say, there is a God, there is a Savior. And I wonder in these moments if you would worship him as your God and Savior.